Well, we are in a sermon series right now on heaven called Heaven on Earth. And uh, besides the fact that imagining and thinking about heaven is one of my favorite pastimes and hobbies, we're basically in this teaching series for two big reasons, all right? The first reason that we want to spend time as a church considering uh, or concentrating our minds and our hearts on heaven is because this is going to be our long-term home, far longer than we're going to be at home here on earth. There was an Anglican bishop by the name of J.C. Ryle in the 1800s who had a truly amazing beard, and he wrote this. A man who is about to sail for Australia or New Zealand as a settler is naturally anxious to know something about his future home, its climate, its employments, its inhabitants, its ways, its customs. All these are subjects of deep interest to him. You're leaving behind the land of your nativity, and you're going to spend the rest of your life in a new hemisphere. It would be strange indeed if you did not desire information about your new abode. Now, surely, if we hope to dwell forever in that better country, even heaven, uh, we ought to seek all the knowledge we can get about it before we go to our eternal home. Why? Or we should try to become acquainted with it as much as we can. See, what he's doing here, he's, he's reminding us of something that's very true, but that we forget very often. And that is, our time here on this earth is very short, especially compared to eternity. And we will spend our home in another place long term. If we are in Christ, we're all setting sail even now for our heavenly country. We're about to depart. We're, we're travelers here, pilgrims, kind of vagabonds just passing through. But there will be truly home. And not for a little while either, but forever. Okay, The sheer scale of time that we spend in heaven will so far outweigh the time that we spend here that we'll look back on this life and it'll feel like a bus stop on the, tra- on the, on the trail to heaven itself. So if we're not growing in our knowledge of heaven, our desire to get there, if we're not becoming more familiar with the culture of heaven, as Ryle put it, and anticipating the joys of heaven, if this place isn't something we long for and eagerly await, it might be a sign that we've become far too comfortable on this present world, that we've mistaken our little nomadic tent existence uh, for the real thing, and that we don't realize the massively huge weight of time that we will spend in heaven compared to our present world. So that's one reason that we want to do this series, to get familiar with the final destination so that we can actually anticipate it, long for it, lean into it like we should. But the second reason might sound like it contradicts the first one, but deep down it doesn't. The second reason for this series is because getting our heads and our hearts kind of stuck in heaven, so to speak, is one of the most practical, tangible, actionable, real-world ways to engage this world with God's love. See, we're his ambassadors, his representatives of a better hope and a better story while we live here. Uh, Another English pastor, actually a guy named Leslie Newbegin, was a missionary to India for years. And when he came back home to the Western world, he noticed something as a missionary. He said, gosh, this This Western world, this post-Christian Western world, has just as many idols, just as many false religions as sort of the pre-Christian developing world does. They just look a little different. 
Instead of golden statues on the nightstand, they're golden parachutes in the bank account. But we're all worshiping things besides the one true God. And so he started to approach ministry and church life like a missionary. He says, how, how do we re-evangelize a world that um, is worshiping all kinds of things besides the one true God? And here's something that he says, a community of people that in the midst of all the pain and the sorrow and the wickedness of this world is still continually praising God, that's the first and obvious result of living by another story than the one our world lives by. He's saying that if we as the church, as followers of Jesus, are going to be able to offer an alternative story of hope that, to what people can find out there in the world, um, it's because we ourselves are so caught up in a bigger story of hope that it just overflows in our lives. Uh, the more we long for our eternal home in heaven and, and praise the God that bought our lives back into his family, the more practically helpful, the more intentionally compassionate we will become while living in this temporary world for this time. C.S. Lewis famously put it like this, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. He said it's since Christians have largely ceased to think of another world that they become so ineffective in this one. So our, our series is a hope of pushing back against that, considering the beauty and the glory of heaven, not just because that's where we're going to be long term, but also because it makes us better citizens of this world today, more loving, more um, thoughtful, more hopeful. And if there's anything our world needs, it's a better story of hope, isn't it? I mean, especially now, hope in a pandemic, hope in racial division, hope in deep political divisions. It just so turns out the best story of hope on the market is also the one that happens to be true, because God told us it's true, that Jesus Christ came from heaven to save us, rescue us, and will bring us back home to be with him forever. So it's in that story of hope that we're going to spend some time as a church considering heaven. Uh, and here's what we've learned so far. We're about three weeks into this thing. It turns out contrary to popular belief, that heaven is not actually a sort of uh, mystical, spiritual existence whose main features are harps and golden lighting. Okay, that's, that's not what heaven is. Uh, it turns out heaven is actually God's home and our home on earth reuniting like they were always meant to be in the same space, in a renewed earth, a physical place. In, we'll live in resurrection bodies. We'll live, we'll walk among the presence of God himself. It's a very earthy heaven. There's nothing wispy about it at all. So last week, we drilled down a bit on what our resurrection bodies will be like. Today, I want us to look at what the resurrection earth itself will look like. All right, to do that, we're going to turn to one of the best chapters in the Bible, Romans 8. And I'm going to read for us verses 18 through 25. You can follow along on the screen. Well, I read, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us, to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption 
and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For it's in this hope that we're saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. All right, so there's a lot going on here, all kinds of cool stuff. It basically breaks down into two parts. We're going to look at it in that way. First, we're going to see what creation hopes for, and then we're going to see what we hope for. All right, so here's what creation hopes for. Did you know that creation itself has longings and hopes for the future? We don't really think about it that way usually. Verse 19, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That word longing, eager longing, or eager expectation, it's actually a word that was used to sort of denote this almost physical, like leaning in, on tiptoes, neck craning forward, trying to see just beyond the horizon where you know something is coming that you desperately want to receive and enjoy. The image here is that the mountains that surround us, the rivers, the land, the sky, the ocean, And every creature that crawls and walks and swims and flies through this earth. In fact, every star in every galaxy, every black hole that we don't even know is out there in the universe, all of it is kind of craning its neck on tiptoes, anticipating, longing, even groaning for something to happen. What is the thing all of creation waits for? The revealing of the sons of God. What does that mean? Paul goes on to explain. Uh, He says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Here's what's going on. When God spoke all of existence into into creation, all of creation into existence. He designed every quark and every koala bear and every supernova with one deep, abiding, lasting purpose. It has a mission. And it's actually the very same mission that God created us with. And that is to praise him, to glorify him, to reflect back to God his beauty, his truth, and his love. In fact, Psalm 19 even goes so far as to say, the heavens declare the glory of God. Right? The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Creation is speaking truth about God. Day to day, it pours out speech. Night to night, God's creation reveals knowledge. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Creation is singing a song of praise to God even now. That's what it was created to do. And so every once in a while, do you guys hear that song that creation sings? I mean, when you, when you see the mountains, do you ever hear them saying to you, we, we exist in a way that you, mountains don't orient their lives around you, right? You orient your life around mountains. They're massive. They have presence and weight and glory. But they do that because they're actually speaking the truth of our glorious God who is present and has weight and has meaning and our, and our lives orient around him. The rivers are constantly pouring nourishing water of life down from the hills and and bearing fruits and green and growth. 
and they're speaking the song, they're singing the song that the Spirit is pouring the waters of life into our world and into our hearts and bearing fruit and bringing life where there was just dryness before. The sheer abundance of trees and flowers and stars in the sky, some of which will never be seen or enjoyed by human eyes, right? Some things will exist in beauty and never even be noticed. All of that abundance throughout the universe, it's telling a story. It's singing a song of praise to God. And it's saying God has so much creativity, so much love of beauty and life that he has this overabundance of generosity that he's just pouring out into the world. Whether anybody sees it or not, there will be beauty there for God to enjoy. Every created thing has its part in the chorus of praise. But Paul tells us here their voices are muted. They're, they're, um, they're muffled. They're, they're gagged right now. They've been subjected to futility, it says, or subjected to frustration. It's interesting. That's actually a word that's used to translate a word in the Old Testament in the book of Ecclesiastes for meaninglessness. Or, you know, when it says life is vanity, everything is vanity. That's this word. It, it's, it's vapor. It's smoke. It's thinness. Being subject to futility is taking what was meant to be real and solid and lasting and strong and making it kind of thin and wispy and muted. And that's what happened to creation. And Paul's referring here to the moment sin entered the world through the rebellion of Adam and Eve through humanity. So many things broke that day. So many relationships broke that day. Of course, our relationship with God was broken. Our relationship with one another was fractured. It's now hard to know and, and empathize and be with people without hurting people. That it, Things have been broken. But also, our relationship with creation itself was fractured. God says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. The earth itself is under a curse because of our sin. And here's why. As God's image bearers, as his rulers in his world his management team, so to speak. Uh, it was our calling to cultivate and care for creation. Um, God says he placed man in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, right? It was our job to help creation sing her song, to help her grow up into her mission in life. Now, nature is not our mother, contrary to popular opinion, but it is sort of our little sister, Okay, this was meant to be a relationship we had with God's world where we can actually care and cultivate her to help her sing her song of praise and witness to God's love. But sin broke that relationship. And now creation is crying out, longing, groaning for a relationship with its rightful rulers, its caretakers, its shepherds. And... Uh, so when God's children are revealed and redeemed and resurrected and remade, creation itself will finally be freed to be what it was meant to be. That's what it's groaning for, the revealing of the sons of God. It'll be set loose to really let the praise fly. And um, as Tim Keller puts it, it staggers the mind to imagine what the world will be like when it's finally free to be itself. I mean, I went up a run Friday morning early to Capitol Lake, and that whole valley is just stunning, right? Can you imagine what that valley is going to be like when it's finally free to be itself 
and to sing the praise that it was always meant to be, to sing to its God? It's hard to imagine, but the Bible does give us little previews. Okay, a little movie trailer. Isaiah 55, listen to this. Then, that day, when God returns, you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. The trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. Instead of dryness will come up life and growth. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. I mean, that's cool, right? Like, let's do that. Let's get to that world. Let's get to that earth. Let's enjoy that experience and that gift, that explosion of new and better delights that God has in store for all of us. Come, Lord Jesus. But until then, the question remains, what does this mean for our lives today? I mean, heaven's our future home, and that's certainly reason enough to consider what it'll be like, anticipate it, grow our delight and hope for it, uh, to consider its ecology and topography. But heaven is also meant to be practical and hopeful and formative for us today, right? The second reason that we're doing this series. And there's some obvious implications here. One of them, of course, is creation care and our role as God's stewards of his creation. Um, for Christians to be leaders in protecting God's world, cultivating God's world, shepherding our little sister, so to speak, protecting her from the damages that sin and selfishness and greed would do. Um, ecology is a deeply Christian calling, but let me take this in a more personal direction just for a minute, there's a reason that we all are here, right, in this valley. There's a reason we live here. There's a reason we vacation here. There's a reason we want to retire here. We are drawn to the beauty of God's creation for some reason. There's something about it that speaks to us. Um, whether we know it or not, I think we can actually all sense that deeper purpose of creation to sing the praises of God. Even if we can't hear the voice, I think we can feel the song right? I mean, you don't even have to be a Christian to know this. Many people have felt the pull to creation because they know there's something almost sacred about it. So John Muir, of course, said, the mountains are calling and I must go, right? He, he heard the song. And um, probably the, the single most common response I hear from people when I'm on the chairlift and uh, it comes up that I'm a pastor is they look at me and they say, oh, that's great. And then they kind of look out at the mountains and they say, this is my church, right? I mean, people know there's something sacred here in the mountains. Um, but here's the thing, is that it's the very best gifts that also become what we're most tempted to worship besides God himself, what Newbegin would call an idol in our world. One of the things I noticed very early when I moved to this valley was that it's filled with people who are drawn here because of the beauty of creation but who are missing a relationship with their creator, right? We're trying to live off um, the capital of the gift without being connected to the giver himself. We hear the call of the mountains, but can't discern that the voice itself is actually praising a God that's even above the mountains and beyond the mountains and greater and more majestic than even Capitol Peak. So one way I think this passage challenges us today 
to confront our own sin, to address our own brokenness, is to admit that so often we try to replace the worship of the Creator in our lives with a worship of His creation. And I'm as guilty of this as anyone. I'm not saying nature isn't a great place to find rest and refreshment and recreation. It's all of that. But not ultimate rest and not, and not soul refreshment and not the recreation that our hearts actually need to know and follow God in this world. Um, and that's exactly actually where Paul goes next. So he says creation is eagerly longing for a restored relationship with the true ruler, right? It's caretaker, it's shepherd, you and I, that will finally free itself to be itself, to, to sing the praises of God into eternity. And we are also longing for that very same relationship to be connected to our true ruler and our true caretaker and our true shepherd. Creation is groaning in its hope And we are too, aren't we? Let's look at verses 23 through 25 as we close here. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we're saved. Now, hope that's seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Christian hope, like creation's hope, is this groaning, longing, patient kind of posture that looks to Jesus as the one who has first secured our adoption into his family and then will one day fulfill it, complete it, make us all grown up in his, in his family. So um, it's something like a newborn child being born into a family, and they're given the family name. And with that family name comes all the rights and inclusion and acceptance and love and and privilege and wealth, all of the stuff that comes with that name. But they're still a baby, and all they have is a name, right? They have not yet grown up into that family name. They've not yet come to characterize the the values and and the the beauty of that family. They haven't lived into the DNA yet. They have the DNA, but they haven't grown up into it just yet. They're in and secure and forever loved, but they're not yet full children yet. The same is true in God's family. We're little kids for now, but one day God is going to grow us up into fully adopted sons and daughters of the king. This is what we're in for long term, what we groan for. We have the first fruits of the spirit, and one day we will be adopted, fully adopted, the redemption of our bodies. So there's a kind of groaning, patient waiting and expectation um, that should characterize the posture of Christians in this world. Now, of course, some of us are tempted to overemphasize the patient part of that, right? So this, uh, this is kind of like uh, our, li- our spiritual lives can be a bit static. We can be a bit maybe lack enthusiasm and energy and zeal for the kingdom. Um, I call these sleepy Christians, right? Like, of course, we're, we're Christians. We believe Jesus. We, we trust his promises are true. But it doesn't animate and energize our lives, right? We're not driven and consumed by the vision of what he has set out for us. We, we know it'll happen, but we're not exactly acting like it's going to happen soon. We're just kind of waiting, 
Um, on the other hand, some of us get frustrated with the waiting, and we don't groan very well, do we? There's some of us who are so determined to experience the things that God has promised in his word that we're, um, we kind of get carried away and, and overactive in claiming it too early. We name the promise. We try to claim it fully now, except we still live in a broken world, and we are still broken people. And part of following Jesus faithfully in this world is a groaning, patient, longing, a prayer that says, come Lord Jesus and fix everything that we cannot fix on our own. But whichever side of the road you fall on, by temperament, God's children are literally designed to enjoy the presence of God and reflect the love of God right back out into the world through worship and praise. And even with the barest glimpse of that vision now and the full experience still off in the future, like creation itself, every follower of Jesus kind of ought to be on tiptoe, right? Craning our neck a little bit, knowing that the full future, the full gifts of his gospel are coming to this world very soon. And that we should have our eyes locked on the promises of God in his word. We should be anticipating his arrival and healing and resurrection hope. For it's in this hope, the hope of adoption through the death of Jesus that we're saved. And Paul writes, It's the sufferings of this present time that are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. What is that glory? The full glory of Jesus living among us in all his power, in all his love, in all his beauty. That's our eternal destiny in God's family when we will join our voices, freed voices, with the freed voices of creation and sing his praises forever. That is the vision of heaven, and it really should impact how we live our lives today. Let me pray for us now, and we'll continue to sing that song of praise even now. God, thank you um, for this great uh, chapter in Romans, and thank you for this vision of a future world where it's finally freed to be itself, freed to sing the truth and the love and the beauty of you and your character And God, we long for the same thing in our lives. We pray for the freedom to be able to see you and know you, the freedom from sin and the freedom to follow you everywhere you've called us to go. God, help us be worshipers, help us be hopers, and help that bigger story of hope overflow from our lives to impact those around us. We ask all these things in your name. 